worship. Father, I ask that you would speak to us. I pray that you would speak to us from these pages, Father, so that our hearts would be transformed. Father, I pray that this morning you would teach us what it means to be spiritually circumcised and to guard against false teaching, against worldly philosophies and human traditions that are not according to Christ. Father, we want to know what that means and we want to apply it to our lives, Father, so that you're glorified in our walk. And Father, we pray the same for our brothers and sisters at Saving Grace Church, Father and Pastor Brian and Pastor David, Father, we are so grateful to you that they are partners with us in gospel ministry. So this morning I pray that from their pulpit, the good news would be proclaimed clearly and boldly. Father, I pray that you would make them fruitful in their gospel ministry as well. And I pray that many would come to know you and that your people would grow there. Father, for the evangelism and discipleship work of Cameron and Kristen, Father, we ask specifically this morning that the students of the university would be engaged. Father, they're being distracted by many things and uh, they're being pulled away. Father, we ask that you would that you would do a mighty work through their ministry there, that many would come to faith and that believers would be strengthened and emboldened as they pursue their university education. And Father, this morning I pray that you would help me. I pray that you would give me clarity and give me boldness. Father, this is a difficult passage. So Father, I I need to be strengthened by your grace. So I pray that you would do that and that you would keep me from error this morning. Father, I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So as I was thinking about this morning's message, I was thinking, what, what worldly philosophy or false teaching would we like to highlight and apply this passage to. And uh, a couple of days ago in the news, the most ridiculous but most perfect illustration surfaced. Some of you may have seen this reported. It was in a sermon last week by the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill. He made, this, he made an astonishing claim about Russian soldiers fighting in Ukraine. Here's what he said. If someone, driven by a sense of duty, the need to fulfill an oath, remains true to his calling and dies in the line of military duty, then he undoubtedly commits an act that is tantamount to sacrifice. He sacrifices himself for others, and therefore, listen to this logic, and therefore, we believe that this sacrifice washes away all the sins that a person has committed. He would have those soldiers and their families believe that whatever else the Russian Orthodox Church teaches about the forgiveness of sins, they can add this. You die in battle doing your duty for your country, your sins will be washed away. 
Now, I'm not going to ask you if that's true. That'd be a theological softball for this group. I think most of our third graders could make a theological pretzel out of the good patriarch over statements like that. But I want to ask a little different question from a different angle. If this teaching was being foisted upon you or upon Living Water Church, how would the Apostle Paul, from what we see in this morning's text, argue against being taken captive by it? What would be Paul's reasoning for you to see to it that no one takes you captive by this kind of empty deceit? That's what I would like to answer this morning. So let's work our way through the text, and then we'll come back to that question. As Josh taught us last week, Paul begins this section of his letter with a command. This is in verse 8. See to it, or watch out, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. What follows in verse 9 is the first in a series of reasons that Paul uses to undergird his warning to the Colossians. Here's what he's doing. See to it that no one takes you captive, verse 9, for or because in him that is in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Here's Paul's logic. In one way or another, false teaching always promises fulfillment, fullness, or satisfaction. If it didn't, you wouldn't be tempted by it. And you wouldn't be in danger of being taken captive by it. Think about these philosophies and these false teachings that are swirling around us today. You'll recognize them. You be you. And what's the unspoken promise? If you're true to yourself, you'll finally find happiness. How about this one? Words of faith create reality. So speak words of health and wealth. And what's the promise? You'll be happy, healthy, and wise if you do that. Find and define your own identity. How many times have you heard someone say, I'm just trying to find myself. <coughs> Surgically mutilate your body if need be. And what's the promise? You'll be happy. You'll be satisfied, finally, with who you are. Die for your country, the patriarch claims, and your sins will be forgiven. In one way or another, false teaching always promises fullness, fulfillment, or satisfaction. But at best, we know that it's a fleeting satisfaction. It's either a phantom that doesn't exist, or it's a mist that doesn't last. Don't fall for it, Paul says, because you already have everything. You have Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's Paul's logic. In Christ, the infinite fullness of the deity dwells. And if all fullness is in him, then to seek it elsewhere is to deny all that is in Christ. And like a fool to search for it where it doesn't exist. You know another word for that? Idolatry. 
not crassly bowing down before a stick or a stone. It's what the Puritans called soul idolatry. It's when the mind and the heart is set upon anything more than God. When anything is more valued, more intended, anything more trusted, more loved, or when our endeavors are more for any other thing than God. When we reject the infinite wisdom of Christ and we treat it as if it is insufficient and look for it in a philosophy or a man-made tradition, it is soul idolatry. It is the appalling double evil decried by the prophet Jeremiah. It is to forsake God, the very fountains of living waters, and to turn from him and carve out for yourself dry, crumbling cisterns that can't even hold water. Don't fall for it. If you have Christ, you have everything. He is supreme, fully sufficient, and fully satisfying. That is the theme of Paul's letter. Paul continues with this logic in verse 10. This is his second reason. Not only does all fullness dwell in Christ, but you as believers have been filled in him. So just in case you wanted to argue, sure, Christ might have all fullness in him, but that doesn't mean that I have access to it. Paul closes the loop. As believers, you have been filled in him. In short, here's Paul's logic. To be taken captive by false teaching is to deny the sufficiency of Christ alone. It is to deny his fullness and to deny your filling in him. And I'll take it further and say that it is to cut yourself off from the very source of true fulfillment and satisfaction. It is to worship the feet of an idol. And yes, it is to carve out cisterns for yourselves that can hold no water when the fountain of living water has been offered to you. That's the groundwork for this morning's two verses. I wanted to spend extra time there because I think that if we understand Paul's argument, his overall argument, then we can move maybe a little more quickly through these next two verses. But first, let me make two quick comments before we jump into that text. First, this sermon was a difficult one for me this week. It covers a tremendous amount of ground, and there are complexities and controversies that had my brain in a knot most of the week. I'll do my best not to burden you with those things, but there are some complexities that are unavoidable if we want to understand this text aright and if we want to apply it to our lives this week. Second, as I was preparing this, I was very much aware of two groups in this room. Some here believe in baptizing babies. Others believe in baptizing believers only. At Living Water Church, we are proudly dunkers. And we dunk believers only. That's what we the elders hold to and that's what we teach. But as important as that debate is, we see it as a secondary matter. That's why we welcome brothers and sisters into fellowship 
even though they may hold a different view on baptizing babies versus baptizing believers only. I say that because this morning's verses are used by both groups to prove their point. And so I've wrestled with this passage um, probably more than usual. And what I'm convinced of is this, that I'm going to disappoint both groups this morning. <laughs> because while it's true that the passage offers some insight into the question of water baptism, water baptism is not the main point of this text. This text is more about spiritual circumcision and about not being taken captive by false teaching than it is about baptism. So if you want to, and, and I, I, I noticed this pun after I wrote it, sorry. If you want to dive into the subject of baptism, <laughs> I encourage you to sign up for the, uh, the class on baptism in the Lord's Supper. So yes, I will mention baptism this morning, but I won't emphasize it because... It's not the emphasis of these two verses. Let's jump now into verses 11 and 12. Paul now gives us a third reason to see to it that no one takes us captive. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You were circumcised. That's Paul's third reason. If that sounds strange... Imagine if you were a first-century Colossian reading Paul's letter for the first time. If you're a Colossian, odds are you're a Gentile. And the way that you see it, circumcision is a gross mutilation of the body. And Paul is now telling you that in Christ you have been circumcised. There was a piece of flesh stripped from you. That would sound strange. And it's an image that would just lodge in your head. So unless Epaphras had already explained this to them, these words probably took them by surprise. So what does Paul mean that they were circumcised? First, we see that their circumcision was not physical. It was spiritual. We know that because Paul describes it here as something done in union with Christ and as something done without human hands. In him, that is, united with Christ, you were circumcised, and it was a circumcision that was made without hands. Also, the Colossians were mostly Gentile, as I said, and so it's unlikely that many of them had been physically circumcised, and yet Paul makes it very clear that they were. So the implication, clearly, is that their circumcision was of a spiritual kind. The idea of spiritual circumcision wasn't something new that Paul was introducing here. It may have been new to the Colossians, but it was well-developed in the Old Testament. There, the word uncircumcision was the go-to picture to describe disobedient, stubborn, rebellious people. People with heart problems, which is why the scriptures say that disobedient, stubborn, rebellious people might be circumcised in the flesh, but not in their hearts. They're said to have uncircumcised hearts. Let me give you just a few examples. Deuteronomy 10.16 Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. 
Jeremiah 4, 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Uncircumcision was also used to describe people who don't listen to God's warnings or, and catch this, or take pleasure in God's words. They are said to have uncircumcised ears. Jeremiah 6.10 To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Moses even used this word picture to describe his own lips, which he recognized were unfit for service to a holy God. He said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And closer to our text, when God transforms a man, it is said that he circumcises his heart. Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Clearly, Paul is speaking here about not about physical circumcision but about the spiritual circumcision or circumcision of the heart. Listen to Paul make this distinction as he explains to the church in Rome the nature of a true Jew. This is in Romans chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who is, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Well, how then did this circumcision happen? We're still in verse 11. You were circumcised by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, these, these two phrases at the end of verse 11 are incredibly difficult to interpret. Fortunately, the differing views don't take us into heresy, so we're pretty safe here. But here's the question you have to ask of, of these phrases. Is Paul using the phrase, putting off the body of flesh, to describe what happened to the Colossians, or is he describing what happened to Christ to spiritually circumcise the Colossians? And there are good arguments on both sides of this. I'm going to take the position that it's referring to what happened to Christ in his death on the cross. And here are my reasons. One, a few verses earlier in chapter 1, verse 22, Paul used the same phrase, body of flesh. And he's clearly referring there to Christ's physical body. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Number two, up to this point in the letter, Paul has used the word flesh four times. And all of them have been in a positive way, not to represent our corrupt or sinful nature, 
He'll use it that way later in this letter, but up to this point, his use of the word flesh has been positive or neutral in meaning. Here are the four places he used it. Colossians 1.22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh, that is in Christ's body of flesh, not a corrupt or sinful nature. Colossians 1.24, now I rejoice in my sufferings, this is Paul, for your sake, and in my flesh, that is Paul's flesh, not in his corrupt nature, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. That's the same word, those who have not seen me in the flesh. And then chapter 2, verse 5, though I am absent in body, that is my flesh is not with you, yet I am with you in spirit. So I run through all that just to say that nothing up to this point has indicated that the word flesh refers to the corrupt or sinful nature. Number three, there is a striking parallel with this passage in what Paul tells the church in Rome. You want to see this for yourself. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul presents spirit baptism as the union of the believer in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In our text, Paul represents their union in terms of circumcision, burial, and resurrection. With circumcision being the parallel to death but being far more graphic in expressing the stripping away of Christ's flesh in his bloody death by crucifixion. My fourth reason is because of the final phrase in verse 11. You were circumcised by the putting off of your flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Grammatically, what's clear here is that this is Christ's circumcision. Or you could say it, the circumcision that belongs to Christ, or the circumcision that Christ experienced. So for those reasons, I believe that the spiritual circumcision of the Colossians was by means of the stripping away of Christ's flesh in his death. Their circumcision was made not by hands, but by the, and I'll put it in quotes, the circumcision of Christ on the cross. One scholar pointed out that Paul is speaking here of two circumcisions. Believers are spiritually circumcised by Christ's circumcision on the cross. And the image is all the more powerful because traditionally circumcision involved the cutting off of a piece of the flesh. Christ's circumcision, though, involved the sacrifice of his entire body. So your circumcision was spiritual and it was accomplished by the circumcision of Christ. Now, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Again, grammatically, Paul is telling the Colossians 
that their spiritual circumcision, their, identifi their identification with Christ in his death, and this is an awkward way of putting it, was in a baptizing manner. That is, they were spiritually circumcised by the manner of their baptism. Terrible English. This is where the baby baptizers now jump in, and they say, see, the old covenant sign of, of circumcision has now been replaced by the new covenant sign of baptism. That would be difficult to prove, though, from this text alone for at least two reasons. One, because the text doesn't speak about replacement. It only speaks to the manner of our circumcision. And two, the circumcision in view here is clearly spiritual, just as we saw. So this isn't about the physical sign of circumcision, nor is it about the physical sign of baptism. Paul is talking here about spirit baptism, what happened to us at the time of salvation. That's clear from the text. We were buried with him, and we were raised with him in this baptism. That's a description of what happens when we were baptized by the Spirit at salvation. The physical act of water baptism cannot do that. At most, water baptism sits in the background of this text as a symbol of the spiritual reality of being buried with Christ in his death and being raised with him spiritually. And for you dunkers, you notice that I made it clear what I think that image might be. So if our spiritual circumcision was by the manner of our spirit baptism, what does that look like? According to verse 12, it involves three things. Our burial, our resurrection, and our faith. Having been buried with him in baptism, the manner of our baptism involves our burial. A burial with Christ. We are united with him in his death and his burial. Paul expresses the same spiritual reality to the Romans. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The significance of that burial might not be immediately apparent, but if you continue reading, Paul is telling us that being united with Christ in his death and burial Burial means that our old self, our body of corruption, was crucified with Christ and buried so that we are no longer slaves to sin. You and I are no longer under the power of sin. For, he wrote, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We'll come to that in a minute. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul sends the same message to the Colossians. In verse 20, he returns to this theme of the death that frees us from the enslavement to sin, and he asks the Colossians this question. 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Christ shattered the shackles of sin, and he unbolted the prison door. Paul is asking the obvious. If you're free from the power of sin, and if you've been united with Christ in his death and burial, then why are you still sitting in that stinking dungeon? We should all think about that question seriously. The manner of our spirit baptism involves our burial, but there's more. It also involves our resurrection, continuing in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. We saw the same thing a few minutes ago in Romans. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Our resurrection was in union with Christ's resurrection. He was raised to life. We too were raised with him so that we might walk in newness of life. Paul is going to make the same connection in this letter to the Colossians in chapter 3 when he tells them, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. That is walking in newness of life as a result of being united with Christ in his resurrection. So the manner of our spirit baptism involves our burial, our resurrection, and lastly, our faith. Still in verse 12. So you're raised, and in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The fact that this burial and resurrection with Christ in baptism is through faith is another confirmation that what we're talking about here is spirit baptism, not water baptism. Of course, it's at this point that the believers only baptizers would say that, ah, there's the proof. Water baptism requires faith, Therefore, we shouldn't baptize babies who do not have faith. Sounds reasonable. That would be more compelling, though, if this text were about water baptism. But like I said, it isn't. Again, at most, water baptism sits in the background of this text. It is the symbol of the spiritual reality that's being described. But what we don't want to miss is the fact that our spiritual circumcision is by faith. In the manner of our spirit baptism. That is faith in the powerful working of God. Where do we see the most powerful display of God's working? We see it in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. The resurrection was a culmination of sorts of the gospel. The resurrection demonstrated Christ's power over sin and death. That's why our spiritually being united with him in his resurrection frees us for the walk that is in newness of life. By saying that spirit baptism is through faith, Paul is saying unequivocally that it is not by works. Rather, it is by grace alone through faith alone because it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. 
And this isn't your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of your works so that no one may boast. Now, let me try to summarize all of that. If that sounded a little too academic as I went through that, I apologize. I'm going to try to summarize it in, a, in just a few sentences. Here's what Paul's saying. Don't be taken captive by false teaching. One, because all fullness is found in Christ. Two, because you have been filled in Christ. Three, because you have been circumcised. That is, as believers, you have been spiritually circumcised by the death of Christ, by the manner of your spirit baptism, which involved your burial, your resurrection with Christ, and it was through faith. That's the best summary I can muster. But let's put this to work. And I know it's a, it's a softball, but let's return back to the teaching of Patriarch Kirill. And let's apply what we've just learned. Let me refresh your memory. Here's what he claims. If someone driven by a sense of duty remains true to his calling and dies in the line of military duty, then he commits an act of sacrifice. Um, he sacrifices himself for others, and therefore, we believe that this sacrifice washes away all the sins that a person commits. Our question was this. If this teaching or anything like it was being foisted upon you, how would the Apostle Paul, from what we just learned in this text, argue against you being taken captive by it? What would be Paul's reasoning for you to see to it that no one takes you captive by Patriarch Kirill's teaching? Well, let's press in on this. One, don't fall for it because all fullness is found in Christ. What he is offering is the fulfillment or the satisfaction of having your sins forgiven. Given that you sin, that you live under the guilt of your sin, and that ultimately the wages of your sin is death, this might be tempting. However, what the patriarch is hawking is that these soldiers can find satisfaction or relief from the penalty of their sins somewhere other than the only place where it can truly be found, that is, in Christ. And even if he were to justify what he said and, and claim that sacrificing their life on the battlefield is something they can add to their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, it would amount to the same Problem. He's tempting them to deny the full sufficiency of Christ by claiming that, that Christ's sufficiency can be added to. Now, it's obvious, but let me say it. This is false teaching. See to it that no one takes you captive by it. Two, don't fall for it because you have been filled in Christ. Now, this is for believers not only is all fullness in Christ, but as a believer, you have been filled in him. Which means that if you're a soldier listening to the patriarch claim that you can have forgiveness of sins apart from Christ, you know that, that teaching is empty deceit, to use Paul's words. You know that because you have already received what he is trying to hawk. If you fall for it, you deny the sufficiency of Christ in you. The all-sufficient 
Christ in whom you have been filled. This is false teaching, plain and simple. See to it that no one takes you captive. Three, don't fall for it because you have been spiritually circumcised. The patriarch claims that forgiveness of sins can be found by sacrificing yourself for others. That's the kind of sacrifice he claims washes away all sins. You can save yourself by self-sacrifice. Well, how does that line up with what you know about the reality of your spiritual circumcision in Christ? Well, you know that you were circumcised by the death of Christ. His circumcision on the cross was the way he circumcised you. And it is that in Christ that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The forgiveness of your sins came by your having been spiritually circumcised by the blood of Christ. It came by Christ's self-sacrifice, not yours. Also, you know that your spiritual circumcision was by the manner of your spirit baptism, which involves your burial and your resurrection of Christ. That means that your old self, your body of corruption was crucified with Christ so that you are no longer a slave to sin. You've been set free from it. That's Romans 6, 7 again. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You have been set free from the guilt and the penalty of sin. So the offer of forgiveness of sin by self-sacrifice is bogus. It can't deliver what's being offered. You can hear Paul asking, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit? And lastly, your burial and resurrection in Christ was through faith. That is faith in the powerful working of God. That is the power of the resurrection. Here are the words of Peter. To Christ, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes, that is everyone who has faith in Christ, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The gift of faith is how you receive the forgiveness of sins. The patriarch would have you believe that there's another way. There is no other way. If you fall for that, you deny the sufficiency of Christ. You deny the sufficiency of your filling in Christ. And you deny the sufficiency of your circumcision by Christ. See to it, brothers and sisters, that no one takes you captive. Now that was a easy false teaching to attack. And so what we're going to do probably this week in community groups is we're going to take um, some other ones that are swirling around society today and we will apply the same principles from the Apostle Paul to other things like expressive individualism and, and the like. And so hopefully we'll be able to take all of this passage and press it deeply into our hearts and use it so that we will not be taken captive by false teaching. Let me pray for you. Father, we want to take the sufficiency of your Son very seriously. 
that we don't want to be taken captive, enslaved by other teachings that would have us deny the sufficiency of your son, the sufficiency of our filling in him, or our sufficiency of our circumcision. So Father, I ask that you would help us to press these truths into our hearts. I, I pray that, that we would embrace this spirit baptism as the most glorious thing that you have done for us and Father that we can just offer our thanksgiving to you for it and Father live in that newness of life like we've been raised to in union with your son. Father we want to live lives like that so Father we ask that you would help us and Father I pray that you would do that work my brothers and sisters this morning in Jesus name. Amen. This time, if you have children in the children's ministry, you can go back and get them and bring them back in that we might example to them worship and communion. Let's stand together. I lift my 